because the closer that we can bring death into our lives, the more comfort we will have and the less fear that we will have about our own deaths. Hello, hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Tea Please podcast, where we spill the tea on mental health, life, the human experience, lots of tips for self-discovery, self-exploration, processing, and healing in the episodes of this podcast. I love an open conversation about life's toughest stuff. It's pretty much my love language at this point. And while the title of this podcast episode may have made you want to skip it or not go there, I'm hoping this conversation sheds new perspective on a topic that is really difficult for us as humans, and that is death. We are going there today with Kristen Elliott, our guest this week. She is an end-of-life doula who guides families and loved ones through the end-of-life process. I learned so much from her about death like the logistics, the industry, the cultural differences, the lack of comfort with a topic like death that truly does affect every single human on this planet. And we're all really uncomfortable with it. Well, probably not like everyone, but the majority of people are uncomfortable or like confused. It's a hard thing to process and go through and understand. It's incredible to me that we as a society do not have more open and honest conversations about it. But... We are making a small step to change that right here and now in this episode because you chose to listen to this episode and be open to a conversation that I don't think anyone typically opts in to have, but I promise it's worth it. In the name of normalizing the inevitable and something that we all deal with and that is hard, it is definitely worth it. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to kick off this episode with the little things that are bringing me joy lately. Sometimes my mind truly feels like torture, and I've had a particularly racing mind lately, the last few weeks. Lots of thoughts very fast, over and over again, worries and securities on repeat, which means it's time to focus a little bit more on the little things. So here are eight little things that are bringing me a lot of joy lately. Number one, pumpkin oat milk from Trader Joe's. I have coffee every single morning. I'm a one cup gal. I don't need more caffeine than that, but I love my one cup of coffee in the morning. And I have just like a dark roast coffee with this pumpkin oat milk from Trader Joe's and a packet of stevia. It's so good. That is bringing me so much joy. I love leaning into the seasonal flavors, the pumpkin spice, oat milk, non-dairy. It's really good. Number two, White Lotus, the show on HBO Max. I just finished it and not that it's bringing me like joy because it's kind of like watching people just unravel, but it is a really well-written show and that brings me a lot of joy. I love to appreciate the art of this show. It's really good if you haven't watched it. Number three, Clinique Black Honey. It's an almost lipstick they call it, but this Clinique Black Honey, my mom actually sent it to me because she had it from forever ago, but this particular lip color went viral on TikTok And it's back in stock on the Clinique website and they also have it at Ulta, but just make sure that it's in stock before you go check. But it's super good. It's like my go-to favorite fall color. It's kind of like a sheer balm almost. Literally looks good on every single skin tone. Um, Perfect little shade. Number four is my Luna weighted blanket. I sleep with this thing every night. I've had it for three months now and I really like sleeping under it. I do feel like it calms my nervous system down. I'm able to sleep more soundly. It's just 
just comforting to have it on top of me. I like it when I sleep. I like it when I watch TV. It's lightweight. It's not too hot. I am a hot sleeper. I like it to be cool and I didn't want a heavy weighted blanket that would make me feel hot and this one definitely does not do that. So it's bringing me a lot of joy lately because I'm sleeping really good because of it. Number five, back to sleeping. I'm sleeping with the windows open these days and the Colorado crisp air feels so good. Number six is the fall activities that are happening around. I'm really trying to lean into them. I love going to the pumpkin patch. I love going to anything that is holiday themed. I love October. So I am just living for all of these like weekend day trips and fun little activities. I think it really helps us tap into our playful side when we get to do these things. And I'm just really living for that. I love getting out and it's just been so much fun. The seventh thing that is bringing me a lot of joy lately is going back to yoga in person. I talked about this a little bit on my Instagram, but I have not gone back to a yoga class since my yoga teacher training, which finished right before COVID hit, and it was not a great experience. Check out episode three of season two, Signs of a Cult Leader, if you're interested in what that experience looked like, but I have not been back to a yoga studio since then, and honestly, it's been so good. I think I was just ready to kind of re-enter my practice and work through some of the stuff that happened in yoga teacher training and um, it's just been really good bringing me a lot of joy to like reclaim this thing that has always been there for me and I kind of abandoned for a year and a half and number eight the last little thing that's bringing me joy lately is introducing a meditation practice into my daily life and my daily habits Um, these are two things going back to yoga and like working on my consistency with fitness and working out because that makes me feel good and also meditation have been things that I really wanted to focus on this month. I talked about this in last week's episode, completely failing at cutting out dairy from my diet. That's absolutely not happening at all. But these two things I have made a lot of progress on and I'm super proud of that. And I am feeling a little bit better, even though like I am still struggling with racing thoughts and stuff like that. These two practices, working out and meditation have really helped me get that under control and feel like a little bit more in control of my thoughts in my life and how my day goes. So yeah, nothing like a little gratitude to kick off a great episode. If you feel so inclined to help a girl out, go ahead and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. It's always super helpful to podcasters and I would be so, so appreciative. Okay, death and dying. Let's get into it with Kristen Elliott, the end of life doula. I personally have not dealt with a lot of death in my family at this point. Um, So it's still something that I like I don't have experience with. So I'm super curious what really drew you into the profession that you're in now. Yeah, thank you so much. So I like you had a minimal experience with familial death growing up Um, and I'm 44 now. So when I was in my mid 30s, I experienced the death of both of my step parents um, in very short time order from each other. So my step parents had been in my life since I was about three years old. So definitely, you know, staples in my life and therefore um, really impactful deaths. Mm-hmm. And one of their deaths was disease related, slow and drawn out. And the other one was really sudden and unexpected. And in both cases, I walked away feeling like, gosh, there has to be a better way to do this because 
In my stepmom's case, we took care of her at home after an 18-month-long battle with cancer. And we had this supportive hospice, and we still, because of the way that we don't really talk about death and we don't have a big comfort level with death in this culture, we really didn't know what was going on with her through the process as it was happening. And had we had a little bit more education, we would have had a greater comfort level with it. We would have been able to been more present, you know, emotionally for her and with her. And uh, I really felt like, gosh, <laughs> that was missing. And then my stepdad's case, he died, like I said, suddenly and in a place that uh, my mom and I were unfamiliar with. So we had to travel to another place, to an unfamiliar hospital where nobody knew us. And um, we didn't also really have the support that we needed in that case to make the decisions that we needed to make. And so flash forward a couple years, I was in a women's group doing some personal development work. And one of the folks had just been through an end of life doula training. And as soon as I heard about the role of end of life doulas and, and how they help guide people through the end of their lives, I just felt this soul zing. And I knew that that is something that I wanted to do. You get drawn to a profession like this because it is, it's such a soul calling, I would think, because I would imagine it takes a particular person to be able to really do it and be there for the people that you support because it is such it's a heavy thing to process like no matter what the what the circumstances are but no doubt like helpful because even in history I know that we've had like different civilizations and death is you know historically depicted in a lot of different ways in history and in textbooks and whatever Um, And culturally, it just looks different. Like, what do you think the biggest difference is between how we deal with death now versus maybe how it used to be? Oh, yes. I love this question. And I also love this topic about kind of the history of support of death and how we approach death. Because, you know, women typically held these um, roles of guiding people through the transitions of their lives, whether that was you know, puberty and menstruation or menopause or old age or death for, you know, millennia, women held that role. And then, and then as we moved further and further away from death in our society, that role also got removed. And so now we're back into a place where, where I think people understand that, um, that having a little bit more support at the end of life is a really valuable thing for a lot of different reasons. But to answer your question, do you know why the living room is called the living room? No. Because previous to it being a living room where you hang out and spend time with people, it was actually the place where you laid the body out in the home when someone died and everyone gathered to honor that person, where funerals were held, where the body was processed after death. And after the Civil War, when embalming was invented and we started to do death differently and and funeral homes opened and all of that good stuff, (laughs) the room changed and suddenly it became called the living room so that the living could hang out in it. Oh my gosh, that is crazy. I had no idea. I mean, okay, okay. That's like a whole new thing unlocked. (laughs) I mean, that's a testament there of how like this a room in your house. Like, can you imagine having a body in your house now? No, I can't at all. Like, unless they happen to pass there, then that's how that would happen. But 
I, I know for a lot of people it's in, in other places or hospitals or whatever. So having that context in the home, I think really shows how different we approach it now because it's it's not in our homes. Like it's not something that we discuss. Spanish cultures may be a little bit Dia de los Muertos and they make altars for people that have passed to the other side. If you've ever seen Coco on Disney Plus, <laughs> there's kind of an ode to that, which I really appreciate talking about that aspect. But American culture is really not like that. It's not, and but it was. And I think you bring up a really great point is that the Civil War, you know, you had kind of for the first time, well, not for the first time, but um, the first time in modern history, you had, you know, soldiers traveling really far from home for these battles and families wanted those bodies brought back home to be honored and buried and, and all of the things. And so that's when embalming was invented as a way to preserve the body to get it back home. And then somebody said, ooh, but we could do this for all bodies. And then we could make a business out of it and we could sell caskets and we could help funeral homes. And I'm, I'm really opinionated about <laughs> the death industry <laughs> and the way that folks make money through it. But, but the funeral yeah. industry is, is also changing right now um, in a really big way to bring back some of those, those closer touches with death that we used to have when, when people did die at home more often and when bodies were honored in the home and funerals were even held in the home. So one of the things I'm really passionate about is home funeral um, because the closer that we can bring death into our lives, the more comfort we will have and the less fear that we will have about our own deaths. I'm like terrified of it, if I'm being totally honest. How can you not be afraid, especially like adding to that? How can you not be afraid when so many people have different ideas about what happens to you? So how can you be sure? Like, is there ever a point that we know and that we feel at peace with it? Like, what's your perspective on the fear piece? Mm, That's a big one. And yeah, I think... You know, fear of death is both really normal because we're human and we are the only species that understands that one day we are going to die. And with that comes an inherent and very healthy discomfort with death because it keeps us alive. Right. (laughs) And more so, you know, if we're honest, back in the time when we were, you know, being chased by saber-toothed tigers than it does now, still how our nervous systems are wired. But... Also, the way that we have kind of shoved death away from ourselves as a culture does a really good job of driving that fear. So Mm -hmm. if you think about all the industries, like the beauty industry always focused on youth and even, you know, the funeral industry, when you think about how if you've been to a funeral and you've seen a body laid out in a casket, if it's been embalmed and it has makeup on, it, it looks like it's sleeping. And... That was done on purpose years and years and years ago because someone decided that people didn't need to see death happen in front of them. And when we remove death from our culture, suddenly we don't have a familiarity or a comfort level with it. So I would say find ways to increase your comfort level with the topic of death. And, you know, it might be just being more mindful about all the little deaths that we go through in our lives, the changes and the shifts and really allowing yourself to feel the feelings that happen with those little deaths and also getting to know yourself really well at the soul level so that you 
so that you understand what your beliefs are and what your gut is telling you about what you think happens when we die. Mm-hmm. I like that, the nudge to go a little bit deeper with yourself and do some soul searching there to see how it feels. And another thing I was thinking about when you were talking is I used to be a preschool teacher and we would talk about death with the little ones in terms of like, oh, a butterfly or like, don't, you can't crunch that roly poly because then they die <laughs> or like watching them happen and then under like they understand what happened to that thing and they're really starting that's like their first touch with death like they're seeing these things little critters or whatever on the playground stomping mm-hmm. on a spider whatever and they die and then and then I don't know what happens <laughs> so it's like we make this effort for with with toddlers and really little ones to understand the basics right that everything is finite living things are going to die And then what happens? I don't know any other time in my life where we've really put any focus on that in my teens or, you know, just growing up. It's not something that we speak about or the only time I did hear about it was in the context of religion. But I like I like that nudge to go a little bit deeper and and pay attention to the different things that die, not even just a critter. What are some other deaths that we can put on our radar that we can even identify as a death? Yeah, I want to, before I do that, I want to circle back to something you said and and give you some props for the way it sounds like y'all would handle conversations with little ones about death, because too often that's where we start removing death from our culture. For instance, by saying, oh, the roly poly is just going to go to sleep now instead Uh, of (laughs) that it died. And that has so many implications because if you tell uh, a small person that the a young person that the roly-poly has gone to sleep, then what are they going to think happens when they go to sleep at night, right? So, yeah. so being able to talk and say, you know, very frankly, that things die to kids is is really, really important. And kids, kids get it. They get it so much more than adults get it. Um, oh yeah. I mean, when we, when we have that vocabulary with them or when we did, then they would be like, oh, that, that thing died or like asking, is he dead or is he sleeping? You know, cause that is a common analogy cause they mm-hmm. could look the same, but yeah, it was, it was interesting to see how light they were able to accept that as truth for them, even at a young age. And you know, what else is awesome too, is the second part of that conversation when, when they ask what happens when we die and we're able to say back to them, I, I'm not sure. I'm, you know, none of us really know. What do you think happens when we die? Because then it starts that curiosity generation about "Mm, what do I think happens after death? Which is another great place to start with people in general to drive a little bit more of a comfort level. Yeah, especially with family pets and dogs. I think that's a common one where people don't necessarily know how to navigate that with, with little kids and want to protect them as much as possible. But I wonder if it is really protecting them. Yeah, I would I would suggest that it's not. I will definitely answer your other question in a second. Yeah. <laughs> but my um my 12-year-old, we our 20-year-old cat died last year and she came with me to the vet and had to be put to put to sleep. See, even there I did it. It had to be euthanized and then we wanted to bury it at home. So, uh she participated with me in making like decorating a piece of cheesecloth as a shroud that we wrapped it in when we took it home from the vet. And then when we got home, she wanted to carry it into the backyard. But something about bodies uh, after they die is that they release fluids. 
So I knew if we picked up the cat from the back seat that there would be a fluid release that would get on her and I wasn't quite sure how she would react to that. So I just took the time to explain, hey, here's what happens. And here's, here's what it means. It's not a big deal. If you don't want to carry the cat, that's cool. And she was like, nope, I want to do this. So she did. There was a fluid release. It did get on her. And she was not phased at all. And then she proceeded to place the cat in the ground, to cover the cat with dirt, and then to say a few words about the cat. And I prompted none of it. And I'm like, I'm in this industry. And, and all I did was open the door for her to walk through it. And she did. So when we provide kids with those opportunities and humans in general, very often they will naturally gravitate toward being really close to death. It makes sense that it would be intuitive, but I think we've definitely lost touch with that intuition and put a lot of like guardrails and, and parameters around what it should look like and makes total sense that that would help perpetuate the fear around it. I know that you talk about having you know other things in place that can help with the end of life process like what what can we do to to live our lives better now that we have the time and hopefully are healthy and able to take advantage of the life we're given like everyone's biggest fear is to have regrets at the end of life right like is that something that you typically hear or what are some of the sentiments that you can pass on to help us live better now Yeah, that's a really great question. And, you know, back to your other question about the little deaths that we experience Mm -hmm. in life, you know, I really, I'm of the belief that because we don't have a comfort level with the big D death, then all the little D deaths that we experience in life are that much more uncomfortable and it can work in reverse. So let's say you go through a breakup or a divorce and it can feel catastrophic and we can tend to want to push those feelings away instead of really sitting with them and getting curious about why we feel the way we do and what the experience teaches us or or meant to us for our you know future and so that's one recommendation that I have is when those little deaths happen whatever they may be job loss a breakup a project ending, you know, whatever it is, that we really take the time to mourn those things and to feel the feelings associated with those things. And then I think also one of the things I I actually do in my programs with the living to help them kind of deepen their relationship with themselves is to take them through a little bit of the same kinds of exercises that I do with folks at the end of life. When when they want to kind of go through some of their regrets and some of their hopes and dreams and the things that did materialize for them in the way that they want and and just take kind of a inventory of their lives to see oh what what was great what what did i not love so much and then take further steps from there which is also something i think we don't really do enough while we're living our lives is to take stock of our life in the moment and really appreciate the awesome things and to take steps to correct or make amends for the things that maybe aren't so awesome. Is there certain conversations that you're having to guide like those answers from your clients and who you work with? We all hear that, like be appreciative, be grateful for what you have now and don't take for granted what you have right now. But it's like, hard to do that because knowing it sometimes is not enough that you need to do that like what does it look like to actually go through that and maybe our minds are more like able to see and 
have that gratitude at that point in life because we know what's coming? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It is really hard sometimes to appreciate all of the things that we have or that we've done and our accomplishments in the moment. And I wish that there was like an easy formula that we could all Right. Know. You don't have a worksheet or something? <laughs> I mean, I do. I do nice. a little bit. But it's really also kind of all interconnected with this idea of not shying away from really getting to know yourself at the soul level um, and understanding what is truly meaningful to you. One of the things I talk a lot about is this idea of the life prescription that we're handed, like that those ideas that you get growing up from various sources about how your life is quote unquote supposed to be, mm-hmm. what you should or should not do. And, you know, for me, it was go to college, get married, have kids, get a dog, white picket fence, and then eat a million Thanksgivings um, until you die. Yeah. And I had my eyes opened at one point to the fact that, oh gosh, I actually want like a whole lot more than that in my life and started rewriting my own life prescription with the help of a lot of different people and a lot of different like personal development modalities. So sometimes it does take a really big life event to help us open our eyes to what it is that's important in life that we are grateful for, that we want to change. Yeah, that's a good point. And everyone's bound to go through an event like that, no doubt. Everyone goes through some something that rattles them and shakes them and gives them that perspective. And it makes me think of even like... Why did you think that that's what you wanted? The white picket fence and the Thanksgivings and, you know, that's... That's the dream, right? That everyone is kind of working towards. And I'm I'm in that now. I'm 29. So I catch myself looking looking for those things. Or like, okay, I just got married. So check, got the husband. <laughs> like, when are we going to have kids? Thinking about all these things. And then it's like, wait, I don't know. The timeline, this is just what I'm supposed to want. Or what else? what happens after that? And I think that's where people have, you know, midlife crisis. Or now they're, I think they call it like the quarter life crisis. Thinking about those things. I think it's easy to get wrapped up checking them off the list because if you do the list, like the list that we're talking about, the find the guy, get married, do the thing, have the kids, all of that, it's going to take you several years, probably like a decade, you know, to get your kids old enough. And then you think like, oh, wow, what else? And there's so much life left, but it's hard to see that if you're maybe in the middle of it. Yes, that is a really good point because we do get caught up in both what society and our families and our communities tell us we we need to have and we keep trucking toward those things without taking a moment to stop and get really curious and introspective about what it is that actually makes our soul zing and so i I got married at 28 i got divorced at 33 my ex and i are the very best of friends and we have a beautiful co-parenting relationship i'm really lucky in that regard. But until the moment that I couldn't deny anymore how unhappy I was, and that was through a lot of physical symptoms, and it got to the point where my body started saying, you cannot go on in this life in this way. I totally didn't pay attention to it. It was easier to just keep trucking along thinking that this is what everybody else wants. So this should be what I want. How long did you feel that? Like, I think oftentimes people don't talk about like what that phase really looked like. 
like, oh, I got to the other side and that's great. And that really helped me to make that change. But was it like, I woke up one day and I knew I needed to do this. So I just sprung into action or what did it look like for you? It was years in the making. It was years. It was probably, probably close to 10 years in the making. I didn't know when I was younger if I would ever get married or thought maybe I'll get married closer to 40. Maybe I'll have kids later in life if I have them. And then, yeah, the snowball effect came in Mm -hmm. and and I got married and I had kids and I'm grateful that I did, but I did ignore mm, close to a decade probably of signs um, until it got to the point where, again, I had all these physical symptoms. Like I went away for a work trip is what happened. And it was a three week trip away from home. And when it came to the last day where the next day I would be coming home, I broke out in hives. I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stop shaking. And I realized at that moment, like, okay, I don't actually want to go back to this marriage and this life. And it's really hard too when all of that looks really awesome on paper. Right. Like you should want it. Why don't I want it? Yeah. Yeah. And that's where like the self exploration and the introspection comes in because if I had had the knowledge of self that I have now, it would have been so much less painful to navigate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's some other things in my life that are misaligned, I would say at this point. And yeah, I like I know I'll get to the other side of it and it will be a death that we will mark as a happy, happy thing whenever I'm able to do that. But yeah, there's there's a season of struggle, I would say, with some of those like not as concrete deaths. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to let that season happen. It's kind of what I meant by allowing the emotion to be felt and allowing yourself to sit in that. There's a reason that things transition the way that they do in a process that your emotional body and your body go through. And when you let that happen, you come out the other side having released it and able to move forward in the way that you want to. Who doesn't want that when you're trying to get out of a situation that is not serving you anymore? One of the other things that I saw on your website that you mentioned was having or working on a legacy project with someone who's near the end of life. So I'm curious what that looks like for someone who's in that stage. And also, can can we start our legacy project now? And what might that look like? Yay, I love that you asked that. <laughs> yes, absolutely, we can start it now. Um, a legacy project, and I hate the term legacy. I'm trying to like re- rebrand okay. that. It's a small project for the industry because I think that we don't often think of ourselves as normal everyday humans as leaving a legacy. That sounds very... Seems so like, I'm not a queen. Who am I to have a legacy? (laughs) But I am a queen, so, you know. I'm a queen too. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I'd love a more accessible name for it. But a legacy project is essentially a leave behind and a leave behind gift. And it is limited only by your own energy and creativity. So maybe for somebody that likes to cook, it's a beautiful handwritten, you know, book of recipes that you made for your family with a story associated with each recipe about the people that loved that food or about the times that you shared together. Um, It could be as simple as, you know, a set of wind chimes that are purchased and given at the right time so that the person, when they hear them, can think of you. It literally 
can be anything. And to your question about can we do that now, I wish more people would start to do that now. I think it's such a great question to even find out like what you're saying to connect to your actual soul. Like if you are literally thinking, what what would I want to leave behind? I feel like that will probably get you somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And actually in my, um, my 12-week mentorship program, that is one of the things that we do for one of the weeks is our own legacy project because it does ask you to look really deeply about what would be meaningful to the people around you to leave them, which helps you connect more deeply to them now while you're living. And that's a really beautiful thing. I like that it can be something simple. Not everyone has such a prolonged end of life. I mean, even with your step parents, you said one was quick, one was not. So it's not always the same in that regard, but it doesn't make anything like less meaningful if, you know, at all. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I've done is written a letter to my daughter, you know, from my perspective right now in life, that is a leave behind letter. And I redo it every year or so because I change over time. And mm-hmm. um, hopefully I'll never have to give it to her. But if if I do, you know, it's there for me and, and really helps me think about our interactions on a daily basis and how I want to be present in her life. I love it. In terms of being there for someone, I'm sure it's different, you know, different families, different circumstances. Everyone has different emotions. It's like a high emotional time in everyone's life. Is there any like advice that you can give for someone who's trying to be there for someone who's grieving, whether it be like the person who's actually dying or helping supporting someone who is processing someone else's death close to them. Like everyone wants to know, how can you be there for someone? A couple different things. One comes back to, to the self again and making sure that before you step into the presence with the person that you are grounded, that you are feeling solid within yourself so that you don't bring any of your stuff into that situation, that you are fully present for them. And another one is don't be afraid to ask for help. So as humans, we can't do it all. And we definitely can't do it all when we're grieving or when we're supporting um, the dying or grieving people. So know who the support system is and then ask for help. That might be an end-of-life doula. It might be a hospice nurse. It might be somebody from the family, whoever it is, you know, definitely make the ask. And then specifically with grieving people, don't be afraid to talk about the person who is dying or who has died. I think oftentimes another way that we push death away is to imagine that if we bring up the dying or the the dead person, that that is going to instigate emotions or make people upset. And it is 110% of the time the exact opposite. It really helps in the healing process to have that person acknowledged and to talk about what is happening. I don't think people do that out of like any kind of malice or disregard. And I don't, I don't think you think that either. If I'm in that situation, I just like want that person to lead, right? If they're, if they want to talk about it, then I want them to bring it up. And it's like, well, if I was in that position, would I be bringing it up? All, like, probably not because it, it, it is something that makes people feel weird. I wish it wasn't, but until we have like more open communication and acknowledgement, then it's still going to happen that way. And another thing too, with folks that are grieving, especially if they've lost someone very directly close to them, is that they have 
you know, often we'll ask them, what do you need? They have no idea what they need. Yeah. Um, and they have, they are not necessarily going to bring up the other person because they are so, they've gone so internally with themselves that that is why it's okay to say, hey, I can see that your fridge is empty. I'm going to bring you some dinner tomorrow. Or it looks like the bathroom hasn't been cleaned in a week. I'm going to get in there and clean it for you. Or I really want to talk about the person that died because I, I, I really have some, some things to share and I think you might like that. And oftentimes, you know, the answer is a resounding yes for all of them. Because it's abrupt. Like to have that person and their presence be completely removed from the physical world and then also not have them like represented in your language anymore. It's like, I don't know. It's not much of a transition if we're cutting it all out at once. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, death is weird. <laughs> death it's is weird. so weird. And that's why I wanted to ask you these questions. <laughs> so obviously there's like a big misconception with death that it is bad and sad and negative and can only be that. <laughs> Are there any other like misconceptions or misunderstandings that you come across? So I mentioned earlier that I'm really passionate about home funerals and bringing back some of the ceremony and ritual involved in end of death care at home. And that might mean taking care of a body, like washing a body, dressing a body, having some kind of a ceremony with the dead person, if not a home funeral. And a lot of misconception is around the fact that dead bodies themselves are dangerous and or uh, that there's something wrong with them. And oftentimes funeral homes or uh, even, you know, police or or other folks in the end of life industry at that point in time in the death will tell you that you have to remove the body right away. There's nothing wrong with the dead body. It's not dangerous. It's not gross. It can be kept at home for pretty much as long as you want to keep it. And so the other thing I always tell people is don't let the industry push you around. If you want to keep a body at home and you want to have a funeral, find somebody who, who can help you facilitate that, but know that you should take the time that you want with the person after they died, because that's, that's your time and you're, you're afforded that. Is that something you can like legally push back on to be like, no, I don't want to do that. It's not actually a legal thing at all. It's a, it's more it's of just a, like a made up thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a business thing. So yeah, you can push back for sure. And and we have, I'm part of a doula collective and all of us at one point or another, I think have pushed back in some form or function on that. Yeah. I can totally see how having someone in your profession or a death doula present be helpful because even when you're saying like a dead body is like not bad, I'm like, what it is? I, I, yeah, like I have reactions to it. I feel weird saying dead body. <laughs> like it's just conditioning. So I'm not like afraid of that. I know it's just a product of what I what my experience is. I don't want it to be that way. I think it can rob us a lot of of processing by not like exploring that. And so because we as a society have like made it this way, it's hard to then accept the alternatives, right? Like I would much rather want you there to like help me understand what's going on. I would not know how to do that alone. I mean, you're taking an amazing first step by having this conversation. So I want to honor you for being brave and, you know, saying the words dead body and <laughs> I know. Wow, this weird topic. Uh, it's so weird, but it's not going anywhere. So might as well figure out a better way to deal with it because I, I think 
it is cold, right? Like when we think about death, it's cold and lonely and and finite. It's done at that point. And I think the process that you've spoken to in the funeral industry and the way that we do things just perpetuates its coldness and how it keeps us at a distance. A hundred percent. We must, we must change that. I love that. And I know you're in Seattle, but is there anywhere else online that people can get connected with you, see what you're up to? I know you have a podcast too, right? Yeah. So KristenElliott.co. You can also find my podcast there. It's called Dying to Live with Kristen Elliott. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. But KristenElliott.co has all of my programs and my end of life support work. That is it for this week's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it and maybe got a different perspective that you hadn't heard before or we're maybe able to shift some of the narrative that we have, that you have in your mind about death and dying and what that means and maybe what it could mean and what it could look like. What would it look like for us to feel more connected to this idea and you know the human experience as a whole? I really hope that we continue to see more conversations like this in the media and mainstream because it's important and it's really helpful to be able to connect and relate to something that we literally all experience. So that was my hope with this week's episode. I love you guys. Please go leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Share this episode with a friend. Come follow me on Instagram at the T Please Podcast. You guys know all the things I have to plug here at the end, but I will talk to you in next week's episode.